Welcome everyone to episode five of Inclusion Infusions. My name is Sarah Gaughan and I'm a Gonkin College's Inclusion and Diversity Specialist. This podcast is an invitation to think critically about the challenges and opportunities of making our learning and working spaces work for everyone. Listening to an Inclusion Infusions podcast is an opportunity to hear the perspectives of expert thinkers in the field of equity, diversity and inclusion, and tie that to the practicalities of Ontario's college system. Today, we're diving into the topic of accessibility on campus. All Ontario colleges have support for students with disabilities. We've improved our built environments. We have legislated commitments for ensuring our communities are open and accessible for all learners, regardless of perceived limitations. With all this work, have we reached a fully accessible college system? I think most would agree there's still work to be done to support the numbers of students who report they have a disability. So at our college, Algonquin College, in 2015-2016, we had 2,700 students that reported they had a disability. Flip to today, 2019-2020, and the numbers increased to about 3,600, which it's about 36% increase. So we really need to make sure we're providing supports for those students and that our system is accessible for all of them. I have two fantastic guests who are gonna help us explore those barriers and set a vision for a more inclusive campus. But before you meet them, I'd like to introduce you to another member of the Inclusion and Diversity Circle. Sarah Jordan's gonna be co-hosting with me today. Sarah Jay started her career as an elementary school teacher and worked for a number of years as a special ed teacher. She then joined Algonquin College, starting here as a disabilities counselor. She's had a couple roles uh, over the years, but currently she's the manager of the Center for Accessible Learning, where she works with the Cal team to provide academic accommodations to students. Okay, let me just say, I get the irony of having a diversity podcast and we can't even represent diversity in our names. So we don't wanna confuse you. I'm gonna be referred to as Sarah G. We're gonna try to refer to my colleague as Sarah J and bear with us as we work through this, uh, listeners. So Sarah, welcome. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here with you, Sarah G. Thanks, Sarah J. It's obvious why you're the perfect co-host for this podcast on accessibility. Your background and experience matches perfectly. But I'm wondering if you can share with me where your energy and commitment to supporting others is drawn from. This is an excellent question. Um, if I look back on my life, I was raised to be open-minded, caring, and to work to include others in every setting that I was in, whether it be with friends, in new settings, in work, school, anywhere I was, I worked to be inclusive, include people in anything that was happening, and make sure that they felt supported. When I became a teacher, I kept this mindset, and I really worked to help my students find their strengths and to climb over barriers in their way. And then ultimately my goal for my classrooms was that they were very inclusive and all students felt welcomed and participated equally. Now on a personal note, when I was in my early twenties, I was diagnosed with seasonal affective disorder, which basically means that the winter months, which are much darker, really affect my mental health and can lead to some level of depression. And so I've learned strategies over the years on how to cope with that. But I think in my current role now, and especially as a special ed teacher and a disabilities counselor, it really created for me a lot of empathy for young people who are struggling, especially in their early 20s, to 
find themselves, to find their strengths. And I would say all of those things combined really drive me to do the work that I do now. Oh, thanks for that, Sarah. Sounds like this is a, like a personal piece for you. I know for myself, uh, I'm a parent of a child with a disability. So that's why this topic is um, really important to me. I think that when we talk about accessibility and inclusion, uh, it's something that can touch absolutely everybody and most people can relate with. So hopefully we can uh, bring that to all our listeners today. I agree. I'd like to now turn away from our initial introductions about the podcast and the topic and talk to you about our first guest. We are about to be joined by Michael Lifshitz, who was born with a condition called multiple congenital musculoskeletal abnormalities. In addition to wearing an artificial leg, he walks with a cane and uses a wheelchair for longer distances. Contrary to what many would believe possible, he became a chartered public accountant and also obtained an MBA from Edinburgh Business School. He has built and sold successful accounting and financial planning practices. Today, in addition to continuing a successful career in finance and accounting as CFO and co-founder of Breakaway Experiences, a gift experience company, he uses speaking, comedy, and writing to not only educate people as to what people with disabilities can do, but also to inspire them to overcome their own challenges and live their life to the fullest of their abilities. Welcome, Michael. We're so glad you could join us. Thank you for having me. So, Michael, in your bio, it was mentioned that uh, some people don't think it's possible that you have multiple university degrees. Now, for the record, Sarah and I weren't surprised, but... You know, apparently that's that's news to some people that you can have a disability and go to school. So I'm wondering if you could share with everybody some of your experiences from either your undergrad here in Canada or your master's that you got uh, studying at the University of Edinburgh that really relates to accessibility and education. Do you have any stories or experiences you could share with us? Uh, I do. So what I've always found interesting it's literally, there's been times I'll give people my business card and it'll say CPA, MBA. And I actually once had someone tell me that, well, clearly there's nothing wrong with your brain. And I kind of looked up it. I'm like, okay, thank you. I wasn't really sure what to say because as obviously you would very well know, someone with a physical disability, there's no reason they can't do university. Maybe it's just adapted a little bit. So in my case, when I if I go back, so I came from the Quebec school system because uh, I grew up in Montreal. So when I was in CJAP, as an example of an accommodation, uh, in those days, uh, they, the buildings were not connected by underground or covered tunnels. So I would make a point that all my classes would be in one building so that I could get dropped off at that building in the morning, go to class, and then go home and not have to worry about going. Because obviously in Canada, whatever semester we're talking about, unless you're doing classes during the summer, you're going to have either winter at the end of the semester or beginning of the semester. Um and in those days, I like in most of my academic days, it was just me walking with a cane. I didn't actually have the wheelchair yet, but obviously walking 
when you have bad balance, walking is as challenged as it is. So adding ice to the mix is not necessarily a good idea. Uh, so yeah, I always would try and be in one class. And then in university, I would, uh, I, I added, because once we got into the longer exams, because of arthritis and pain in my hips and whatnot, I was not able to sit for the whole time or write really quickly. So I got extra time uh, to write my exams and was able to get up and move around. So I'd often write my exams in a separate room because obviously you can't get up and start walking around in a big hall with all these students because you would disturb people. <laughs> so it's interesting. Actually, I was remembering the national exam that I did to get my CPA. I actually wrote at the Claude Robillard uh, gym or fitness center in Montreal in the men's locker room. Uh, so yeah, I uh, I wrote my CPA exams in a locker room. Uh, but yeah, it and, and I mean really like I think the big thing for people to remember is that there may need to be certain adaptations, but someone with a disability still can go to school, still can get a degree, still do all these things. It's just maybe that little bit of extra help. And what I always like to emphasize to people was the help was about making sure you're testing my knowledge of the material, same as anyone else, not being at a disadvantage because of whatever disability I have, right? So really making sure we're leveling out the playing field so the disability is not coming in to the equation in evaluating how well uh, someone knows the material. The one other thing I would say as a weird story, uh, when I turned 18, I moved to an adult hospital. And I remember going to see the doctor and I went to see him once because the doctor at the end of the meeting uh, appointment, he asked me, where are you going? And I said, well, I'm going back to class. And he goes, oh, you go to school. Um, and that was the last time I went to him. Because honestly, you want a doctor that has a little bit more confidence in you than being like I was 18. I'm like, of course, I'm going back to Shiza. Why wouldn't I? Uh, it seems like a weird reaction to come from a doctor who's supposed to be educated. Uh, so anyway, that's just my pet peeve that I threw in there. I always tell that story because it's my pet peeve. So it's my venting. Uh, my comedy is in part funny and in part my venting my frustration so yeah that's kind of a bit of the experiences i've had with the education system yeah thanks for that it sounds like uh there's been some microaggressions along the way but that uh you've overcome them all uh well i tried well well i guess i did because i i have the degrees to prove it but i i think if there was something i would give someone as advice is someone with a disability has the right to an education and stick up for that right. So I'll give an example. When I was in Shijap, uh, I there was one class that I needed me uh, moved uh, in order to complete. So when I was in Shijap, I did, 
I was in an honors program and I did a couple of certificates. I think at the end it was two certificates just because I was doing an international studies certificate. And then right my last semester, I realized I needed one course to get a Canadian, a Quebec Canadian studies certificate. So I figured, okay, may as well do that English course, get another certificate once I was at it. Um, so, and I remember we, I, the, the person in charge of the services for students with disabilities at the time at my CZAP was not terribly helpful. Her solution was I should do a reduced load because it would be difficult for me uh, to be able to get to classes. And my thing was, no, well, if you did your job of advocating on my behalf and talking to my professors, uh, there wouldn't be a problem. And there was one course I remember uh, I was told by the person in charge of the service that the professor refused to move the class. And I went to my dean and explained why I needed this particular class. And at the first lecture of the semester, the professor asked to speak to me afterwards. And she explained that it was just her office happened to be in that building. So she preferred she preferred it, but had she known it was a case of a student with a disability and an accommodation, she would have gladly accepted it. Uh, so I'm not too sure. So sometimes you have to be a little careful uh, that if if someone says something's not possible, don't be afraid to question it, because uh, otherwise I'd probably still be going through she's at the reduced, <laughs> the reduced load plan. So uh, I, I think it's important for people with disabilities to not be afraid to advocate on their own behalf is what I would say. I think that that's wonderful advice. This is Sarah Jay now. Um, Self-advocacy is such a big part of what we try to support students with disabilities with. And I really do appreciate your humor on all of this too, Michael. Thank you. I, I, I think humor has kind of been therapy for me. So I always joke with people that if I, if something bothers me, smacking someone over the head with a cane to knock sense in them can get me in trouble. Whereas making a joke about them, <laughs> there's not much they can do. Right? So, yeah. Um, so there I you go. I think that's a better strategy for sure. And I very much subscribe to the uh, policy of using humor to cope with the stressful things. Yeah, absolutely. So I have a question for you now. Um, as we started thinking about this podcast, I was thinking about my 20 years working in uh, education with students with disabilities, and now being a manager, I'm still, well, very frustrated and quite frankly amazed that we haven't created a much more inclusive and accessible system for students. Michael, can you reflect on the progress or lack of progress that you feel that we have made in the workplace and employment success for people with disabilities? I, I, I think we have made progress. I think there's still a fair amount of work to be done. I think there's issues around uh, certainly attitudes pose one barrier. And I think it's, I, I think I actually have a theory that the majority of people, the issue is not a lack of willingness to 
be inclusive, but a lack of awareness. So I actually have a theory that there's the people that are totally comfortable in interacting with people with disability, and often it's people like yourself that have been working in the field for such a long time and have known people with disabilities and, and are, it's just second nature to you, right? Because obviously after 20 years of working in the field, you've seen what people with disabilities can accomplish or it's, it doesn't come as a surprise to you, right? Uh, whereas, and then there's the kind of very small percentage that whatever they're going to hear or see are going to think that someone with a disability uh, can't be, can't go to school, can't work, whatever the case may be. And then there's the majority of the people that are the people we need to target with awareness campaigns. And I know Sarah and I are both involved in uh, EARN, um, the Employment Accessibility Resource Network, and they do workshops for employers to help educate as to what someone with a disability can do. It's So I think there is that awareness piece, but there's also the infrastructure piece. So when we're talking about having employees with disabilities, is there an easy way for them to get to work? We have issues with Paris Transpo being able to pick up people on time. Like I, I remember when I worked in uh, Montreal, I, I used to joke that in Montreal, Paris Transpo is called Transport Adapté. And I used to joke that the reason they call Transport Adapté is because you adapt your schedule to when they show up. Um, or in winter, which is when I would use it uh, more, there's the reality that is the uh, streets, is the sidewalk adequately cleaned that someone with a disability can be dropped off and get into the building. Uh, so there was, and the, the the company I worked for, it was a university, and they had talked to the city numerous times about having a larger drop-off point in front of the building so that an adapted vehicle could come pull up and drop someone off. The challenge was that they literally made it big enough for one car. So an adapted bus could not fit there. Adapted taxis may have problems. So if you're getting out and there was no um, slope in the sidewalk, um, so the adapted vehicle would have to drop me off at the end of the sidewalk, which if they don't clean, how do I get back, right? How do I get into the building? Often it was a nice guy I knew who worked in the print shop that was in our building that would come out with a shovel and shovel in front of me to help me get into the building, uh, which is probably not appropriate. Um, and I remember I always laughed. had a message saying, make sure your drop-off point is clean, which I always found weird because if I could shovel the snow and make the thing clean, I probably wouldn't be needing transport at that day. Uh, so it was an odd question. Uh, so I think um, there's the attitude piece, but there's also that infrastructure piece. And I think it really becomes a question of cities and all levels of government working together. Like I know we have the Canada Accessibility Act 
and Ontario, we have the EODA. But I think one challenge is there's not necessarily dollars attached to the law. So the politicians say thou shall be accessible. They don't necessarily think about the uh, the the money piece or the infrastructure piece, right? So how do we get particularly older buildings more accessible, right? Ottawa were fortunate that a lot of the people, if you look at Ottawa, you can actually tell how old the neighborhood is. Because if you look at the buildings in the market, not that accessible. If you look at areas like Orleans or Barhaven that have built been built up more ex- recently, they're quite a bit more accessible. So when we talk about employment, it's great to say employers should be accessible, but how accessible is the infrastructure to be able to get employees with disabilities there? Um, that I think is something we need to think about as a society. Like when I say we, I mean the collective we. Um, and talking about infrastructure, I, I rem- as I was thinking about this interview, I remembered, so our CJEP was split. There was an older building and a new building. And the older building had ramps wherever there were stairs in the hallway. Um, And we always used to joke that the ramps were meant for students with hearing impairments because the ramps were so steep that if you had a wheelchair, a power wheelchair, maybe could get up or get stuck. A manual wheelchair, you had to be Superman to be able to get up the Mm -hmm. ramp because it was so steep. And the students with visual impairments, their canes would get like like strip on because they were so steep. Um, Or so the older building, there was places where the, um, as a fire prevention mechanism, there were metal grates that would come down. And I so they would cut off sections of the building. So if you had a fire, only certain sections would be burnt, right? I, and it wouldn't spread. I remember we had, I was doing a, an intensive course over the winter. And one of the, my classmates had, was a paraplegic. He, had, uh, he was in a manual chair. And there was a fire alarm when we were down in the cafeteria. And then we went back up and we were talking about what would happen if we had to get back out. And we were horrified to find out where the class was. We would have to cut through the library and the library elevator was not big enough for a wheelchair. It was only big enough for a library cart. So these are all things that I think people need to consider when we're talking about employment and accessibility. What, how accessible is the physical space both regularly and in the event of an emergency, have that evacuation plan? Um, I remember I was working at, so my first accounting job when I worked for a firm, it was Deloitte and Touche in Montreal at Place Fort Marie, and we were on the 29th floor. And one day there was a fire drill, and I was waiting at the meeting point in my wing, and Someone asked me, Michael, what would you do in a real fire? And I'm like, that's a very good point. Because me getting down, I'll be honest, me walking down, I can do, at the time, I could do some stairs. 
but 29 floors, honestly, I think at that point, I'd have to weigh the pros and cons of <laughs> burning to death versus walking down 29 stairs, flights of stairs. Uh, so I asked the person in charge of our wing, and he explained to me that there was actually a list at Placeville Marie of all employees who need help in an emergency. So if ever there was a real emergency, the fire department would have the list and I would go to that meeting point. And if I need to be evacuated, the firemen would come get me and evacuate me. So these are all things that I think need to be considered. Uh, when I worked at Nortel, which was a smaller plant, I had two buddies, quote unquote, who their job was in the event of an emergency, their job was to make sure that I got out okay. So they would come and make sure I got out okay. Uh, the key point to remember, if you do have a buddy system, is let the buddies know, because my manager only told one of the two employees. Um, so I hope your buddy doesn't have a sick day, right? Well, 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 that's why you have two buddies, but the two buddies only work if both buddies know that you are, that they are a buddy. And I mean, at the end of the day, obviously any of my colleagues would help me, of course. But the point is to have two people that you're sure are going to help in the event there is an emergency, right? Um, and of course, there's all the other, I mean, in my case is physical, but it's making sure that your fire alarm, there's also a flashing light for people who have a hearing impairment. So there's that thought process of, like when we talk workplace accessibility, there's the day-to-day -day accessibility, and there's also the planning for emergencies, what would happen in uh, evacuation situation, right? Absolutely. And I very much agree with you. And the building that I work in is very accessible and it was built on universal design for learning principles. And that's very much the direction that I'd like the college to go in and everything we do. And people also need to realize that's what, you know, a lot of the tools that we use now were designed originally for people with disabilities, but now are accessible for everybody. For example, font on phones, making it larger, all those kinds of things. So I appreciate the challenges you've gone through for sure. It's interesting that you say accessibility is good for everyone, because that's the point I try to make to everyone. Yeah. Accessibility does not mean making it. The nice thing about it is making it accessible, putting a ramp in does not mean it's no longer accessible for other people. And I think that's the key point, right? That yeah. accessibility means accessibility for everyone. It doesn't take away from anyone else, right? Yeah, I have a, a former colleague who was visually impaired and he used to always joke with us that the lights were just an accommodation for seeing people. He didn't need I them. like it. I like it. I like it. I thought it was interesting what you said about the building being built universal principles. I think what it comes down to is every time we make a decision, we should at least think about the accessibility angle and how does it react to an accessibility level. So, for example, the show that I started bi-weekly, I did it at a place that was wheelchair accessible. And then I started thinking about what other 
if I'm going to say this is accessible, what else could we do to make it accessible? So one of the things I've done is I've added that when people order tickets, they can request ASL interpretation or closed caption, closed captioning, and that if somebody needs that, we would have ASL interpretation or closed captioning so that, because that way someone with a hearing impairment would be able to enjoy the show. So I think when you're talking about accessibility, and I challenge everyone, think about what are the barriers to accessibility? Uh, I, I was giving a presentation to a company and one of the people had a good point. So for example, application processes, if you have an application form, do you have that application in Braille or if it's online, is it uh, accessible that someone who's using a reader could read the application form? Those are all things to consider that if we're talking about accessibility, how can we remove those barriers? And it could be in a very cost effective way, right? It's like, I'm actually quite excited that I've noticed on Facebook and Twitter, they actually have a place now that when you do a post and you post a picture, you can put the alt text so that it's easier to read for a reader. I think those are all steps in the right direction, right? Absolutely. And you're right. There can be simple hacks that doesn't always have to be costly because as you were mentioning, so much of what we try to do in terms of accessibility is costly. So when there are cheaper and easier ways to do it, I'm all for it. My pet peeve is the places that just have one step to get in. I'm like, okay, guys, come on. It's easy to make a ramp or there's a stopgap that will, for a donation, I know that's here in Ottawa, the stopgap that you can, for a simple donation, they will put a ramp that addresses one step. step. And at least it's something, right? Yes. At least it's making that effort. And I think that's that's the thing. I Like, I realize places that are up a flight of stairs, that's not going to work. And it's more expensive and all the rest of it. And we have to think how we can make it accessible. But the small stuff, I'm like, okay, that's just almost being lazy. Right? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, well, Michael, I think uh, we're coming close to the end of our time. So I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners where they would be able to find you online, on Facebook, on Twitter, to hear some of your humor that's maybe not so PG. It, uh, so I have a YouTube or my Facebook page. It's under the name Illumabilities. I, I like to joke, I thought Lipsis was difficult to spell. So I came up with Illumabilities, <laughs> which is not exactly easier. Uh, so, but it, it kind of signifies the shining light. So my slogan is shining light on abilities. So that's why I came up with Illumabilities. Uh, so yeah, people are welcome to my website, Illumabilities.com. I have a newsletter that I try to do monthly. Uh, keyword being try, um, but the effort is there. That's what counts. Uh, so they can subscribe to the newsletter. They can follow me on social media and, uh, yeah, the, I, I'm, I seamlessly self-promote all the time so they can see what's up. 
uh, and what's coming up on the, down the pipeline. And uh, my goal for the new year is to do more stuff online. So that'll be accessible for uh, people outside of Ottawa as well. Um, so, yeah, that's where they can find me. Well, thanks for that funny, insightful chat today, Michael, and painting your vision of, of what an accessible Ontario would look like. So thanks for joining us. And everybody knows where to find you online now. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for doing this. It's an important conversation for us to have. So I appreciate you doing it. We're now going to hear from our guest, Lindsay Bortat, to bring in her perspective to paint a vision of accessibility and our challenges in achieving it. Lindsay has over 10 years of experience supporting individuals of diverse backgrounds in the field of employment and career development. After completing an undergraduate degree in psychology, she went on to pursue a master's in educational counseling. In addition to that, she's a certified career development practitioner and is recognized by the Canadian Counseling and Psychotherapy Association as a Canadian certified counselor. Lindsay's proudly supported Algonquin College students and graduates over the past four years. Most recently, that's involved uh, working in partnership with all four Ottawa-based post-secondary institutions on the David C. Only Initiative, which focused on bridging the gap between students with disabilities and employers by building pathways to meaningful employment. In this role, she developed tools and resources, as well as provided direct support to students and graduates with disabilities who are seeking employment. When walking alongside her clients on their career journeys, she's taking advantage of her quarantine time by cozying up to her three-legged dog. Thanks for taking the time to chat with Sarah and Sarah today, Lindsay. Thank you for having me. So we wanted to invite you because you had this incredible opportunity to work with the David C. Only Initiative for a few years. Could you tell us a little bit about that project and what were the barriers that it was created to address? Yes, that's a great question. I am, I'm super glad that I did have the opportunity to work with the David C. Only Initiative. It was such a unique opportunity. And I think to address your question about why was it created and what barriers was it addressing, is that we all know that employment, right, is, is an indicator of inclusion in society. And, um, you know, on topic with inclusion and accessibility, we know that we're trying to create this opportunity of inclusion and this provides individuals with a sense of fulfillment and purpose when they have employment. And individuals with disabilities should not be an exception to this. But what we know from the research um, is that individuals with disabilities are less likely to be employed than those without. And specifically in the post-secondary institutions, when individuals with disabilities leave their post-secondary institutions, they have lower employment rates than those without disabilities. They make less money and they're actually more likely to be employed part-time rather than full-time. So, you know, knowing that this is kind of what the research was saying, the David C. Only initiative was created. It was a two-year government-funded applied research project aimed to figure out some of those barriers and provide positive and sustainable change for employment outcomes for post-secondary students and grads with disabilities. So the unique part of it is it was a collaboration project hosted by Carleton but in collaboration with the University of Ottawa, Algonquin, of course, and Licity Collegial. And what we noticed was that there was actually no systematic approach to supporting students with disabilities in the post-secondary environment. 
Therefore, you know, the project was aimed to bridge that gap and increase collaboration between the disability service offices and the career services offices so we could support some of those positive outcomes for this uh, population. So, Lindsay, you and I worked closely and you and your team were really key in making some great changes in making um, not only Cal more accessible, but other areas of the college, co-op, employment, and and really focusing on figuring out how to support our students with disabilities out in the workforce. So you've talked about the David C. Only program, why it was there. Can you talk to me about what some of the success stories were from the David C. Only initiative? And I know there were lots. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, You know, it's one of those opportunities that ends up being so rewarding because you see some of that that change right come into play and that conversation that we're all trying to have being moved forward um so you know when you ask about the successes of the project one of the biggest success successes was that collaboration so bridging the conversations that weren't being had in previous years between the disability services office with the career services office and with the co-op office And so by having some of these conversations, we were able to identify those gaps and implement some things that were very important. So one of the things we did um, was that we recognized that co-op students that were going out into their work terms didn't have a formal process of asking for accommodations for their work terms. So if they had needs or there was something that would be an adjustment that they needed in their workplace to be more successful, there wasn't a a formalized process in place. So we worked together um, with your great help and your team's great help, Sarah, to um, implement a co-op work term accommodation form, which was moved forward last year, which is really exciting. It is exciting. Well done. Yeah. We also noted that there was like all of this sort sort of apprehension from different services in terms of you know, their comfortability in um, offering their services to students with disabilities. Like there was a bit of a um, uncertainty about how to support this particular population um, and thinking that they needed to do or say certain things. And so we wanted to kind of break that barrier down in terms of, you know, let's, let's look at the language that you can use. Let's look at how you can approach these situations. So we also created a professional development training that we delivered to a number of different departments on campus as well with a with an opportunity for them to ask their questions about these situations so that they could have some of that confidence in increasing the way that they work with different students with different needs and we also did um you know a number of different tools and resources so two that i can i could think of are we made an employer guidebook and a job search, a job seekers guidebook for students with disabilities. So these guidebooks are to cover, you know, anything from language being used, disabilities and what their common accommodation needs might be, to disclosure, um, and to community resources. So it's sort of two comprehensive guidebooks, one to serve employers to support them in their recruitment practices and their accessible recruitment um, practices and needs, and then another to support our students and graduates who will continue this job search piece. 
And we made that into an online module accessible through the library as well. Um, and then we had another, I had another counterpart on my team, of course, who was uh, working specifically with our students on the spectrum. And she had a career readiness workshop series that went over a number of different topics to help um, people in that category sort of prepare. Um, and it was customized to the needs of that population. Yeah, and I know that those were in our transition support center, and I know they were well received by students. And BG really helped those students to feel more comfortable with building their employment skills. And I think the students really benefited from her work. Definitely. Yeah, we had some great feedback from that. So, Lindsay, I know some of our listeners are now thinking, okay, where can I get my hands on those guides? Um, so since we're in a virtual world and nobody can really go to campus right now, how can our listeners get copies of that if they're an employer or a student who wants to um, become familiar with those tools and see if there's learnings they can apply? How do they get them? Yeah, so the, um, the library guides through the Algonquin College website uh, would be a great place to start. And there through the Career Hub they have different modules related to employment. And one of those modules is called um, a guidebook for students and job seekers with disabilities. So that's the most accessible way right now. Uh, the other two guidebooks are accessible through, through our center. So if someone was meeting with us in person, we could distribute that information online. They're also available on the onlyinitiative.ca website. So those guidebooks haven't been published on our Algonquin College site just yet, but are being distributed as needed. Um, but they are accessible to the public and everyone um, through the onlyinitiative.ca website. How do you spell only, Lindsay? O-N-L-E-Y. Excellent. Thank you. I'm wondering if we can get a little bit more granular then. And, and I'm Absolutely. wondering if you would have any advice for people in their day-to-day -day, uh, interactions to increase accessibility and address that inherent ableism. I was hoping you would ask me that. <laughs> I'm like, that's so much more digestible for people. Um, so lots of tips I would have. Uh, I'll start with just a few. I think, you know, when you're unsure of something on your day-to-day -day, and it has to do with interacting with a student or an individual with a disability, don't be afraid to ask the person themselves, right? The person with that disability is the expert in their own needs. And I think that it's really important for people to be able to talk to them about their preferences, you know, ask them what their needs are and how they think that they would work best because they're gonna know that better than we do. You know, with that comes on a, a smaller scale, you know, educate yourself. For each of us, it's important if we have an area that we see that we are limited in, it's okay to go and educate ourselves, learn, read about it, um, have an open mind and sort of absorb that knowledge so that we can be better at what we do. I think also um, respecting a person's lived experience it's never okay to act like we know what someone has lived through or how they experience the world, right? So let them tell you if they feel comfortable and be okay with that. One thing I think that people tend to do is they shy away from having important conversations and conversations that could potentially help someone because they feel uncomfortable 
or maybe they just feel like they don't have enough information to handle that situation. So welcoming that information from the expert themselves can be very helpful. Another thing I would suggest is self-evaluate. So as a staff member at the college, as a faculty member, asking yourself, you know, are my current practices accessible? Are they inclusive? And really understanding that you know, making your service for one person or making your classroom more ex accessible for one person is actually making it more accessible for everyone. We often use the example of, you know, an a, um, automatic door opener. It's not only beneficial for someone in a wheelchair, but it could also be beneficial for someone who has several children who's pushing a stroller. And that's a very visual idea of how something like that can be effective. When you help one person, it helps many. Yeah. And now in COVID, we can just hit that button with our elbow instead of touching it with our hands. Exactly. Yes. And of course, taking advantage of the resources that are available to us. So we know that, you know, the Center for Accessible Learning is filled with experts in their field, and they may have some insights into situations that you need support with. And I think falling back on those resources and taking advantage of them is very helpful. Same with employment or knowing that there are these, for example, these guidebooks available or these resources that you can refer your students to for more information. You know, we tend to think about diversity and inclusion in that order, you know, diversity and inclusion. However, you know, I always think when we put inclusion first, we're going to have more of a chance to experience that diversity. And, you know, we're not going to benefit from the diversity of those around us until we're offering inclusive workplaces or spaces that attract the kind of amazing talent we would find in our students and grads with disabilities. That's great advice, Lindsay. Great words. Um, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And it sounds like you've done great work with DCOI. And I know the students have really benefited from the work that you did, that Erica did, and BG did. And I thank you so much for your work at Algonquin with uh, the students with disabilities and making pathways for them. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to, to talk about this and help move the you know, inclusion conversation forward. And I appreciate uh, the time that you guys have taken today. Thanks, Lindsay. Sarah G, thank you so much for uh, including me in this podcast today. I'm a big fan of podcasts and I loved being part of one and especially love this topic about accessibility, disabilities and inclusion. I live this every day and I work with people who support people with disabilities and I'm so thrilled to have heard um, the stories and experiences from both Michael and Lindsay. I'm excited to hear the strides they've made both, both with their own experiences and supporting other people with disabilities. And I hope that um, the employees and students who listen to this and people outside of the Algonquin community, hopefully this podcast gets spread far and wide, really now think about life through an accessible lens. When you're out in the world, look to see if the space is accessible. If you're in a meeting, make sure everyone's included. Can everyone see? Can everyone hear? really start to put yourself in other people's shoes as you go through life so that we have a society, a Canadian society that really is very inclusive. And as Michael really showed us, humor is an amazing tool along the way. So use your humor, use your empathy, 
and help to make this place a better world for people with disabilities. Well, and thank you, Sarah J, for agreeing to come on co-host with me today because it's uh, great to have a partner as we have some of these conversations. Um, the more people that are that are sharing their experience and voices, the better. So thank you, Sarah J. If you'd like to continue the conversation with Michael, you can reach him at Illumabilities, which is spelled I-L-L-U-M-A-B-I-L-I-T-I-E-S dot com. And you can normally find Lindsay on our Ottawa campus at the Employment Support Centre, but you can find uh, her online. So you can just Google the Algonquin College Employment Support Centre, or you can always find her on LinkedIn as well. So that's where you can connect with our awesome guests. And also a last thank you to the team at Pop-Up Podcasting who makes us sound great on every episode.